0: Good morning. I invite everyone to find their seat. We'll get started. I'd first, I'd like to say Merry Christmas. Uh, my name is Doug Shields, and I'm a deacon to serve you here at Community Baptist Church. If you're visiting with us, we hope you've received a visitor's packet. There's some in the lobby, or you can see one of the deacons at the back as you leave. If you have received one, there's a spot in there where you can fill in some information just so we know who you are. And when the offering plate comes around, we did ask that you drop that in the offering plate. Uh, Busy, busy, busy time of year. So most of our schedule this week is fairly normal. Um, Sunday evening tonight, we have our normal 630 service. We'll be doing communion this evening, so I invite you all back for that. Uh, Wednesday at 6 a.m. is a steadfast men's group meeting in the ministry house. And our normal 6.30 Bible study and prayer time, um, there is a slight error in the bulletin. There is junior high and senior high youth group uh, this Wednesday night. There is no Kids for Truth this Wednesday night. So it's kind of conflicting there. There is junior and senior high, but not Kids for Truth. Um, And I know our family is trying to plan what's going on Christmas Eve next Sunday. Do not come for Sunday school, because you'll be very lonely. Uh, There is only the 10.30 a.m. service next Sunday. There is no evening service, so we hope you'll spend that time with your family. Um, One other event coming up a bit in the future, mark your calendars, December 29 and 30, is a church-wide campout. So if you're a camping type, which excludes me, um, I'll be praying for you all out there. So, uh, But if you like to camp, uh, there will be a church-wide camp at uh, December 29 and 30, and I believe it will be at the Dupuy Preserve out very far west of town. Um, also, uh, if you're not familiar with the lobbies you come in, as you come in the building, on the right-hand side, there's some cubicles on the wall. Those are mail slots. Each of you have a mail slot. Uh, if you look at the letters posted there, you find the first letter of your last name and look below that letter. And I'll bet you right now, there's probably some Christmas cards for you there from some of our thoughtful and wonderful church members that give cards every year. Um, Monica's one of them. Monica, you've got about five or six cards waiting for you out there. Um, I try to deliver those as I can, but this time of year, there's a whole bunch. So please check that. And also as you're leaving on the little table there, are the 2018 giving envelopes. If you use the envelopes for your offerings, um, one thing: if you're used to checking for your number, it's different. Um, apparently, we had a whole bunch of envelopes, and rather than buying more, we're going to use up what we have. So check for the name on the top, not necessarily the number, and you'll find out all the dates are wrong. But it's okay. So just use the envelopes as you come each week. So if we could open in prayer. We'll get our services started this morning. Lord, we're so thankful for this wonderful Sunday that we can come, Lord, especially as we look forward to your birth next week, or as we celebrate Christmas. Lord, it's just unbelievable to us that you would leave the glories of your throne in heaven, where you've been forever past and will be forevermore. Lord, that you would lower yourself to, to come to this earth like one of us, Lord, as a human. And yet while here you lived a, a sinless life and became the perfect sacrifice, Lord, that all of our sins might be forgiven, Lord. That's just totally unbelievable and un, un, I just can't understand how you could love us so much. We're thankful that, that your plan is perfect, Lord, that you came and did make that perfect sacrifice so that we can have fellowship and communion with you, Lord. We just thank you so much for loving us to that extent. Father, we pray that you'd Join with us here today, Lord, as we come to worship you, Lord, I pray that everything that we do would glorify your name, Lord, and we would worship as we truly should, the, the King of kings and Lord of lords and creator of all. Lord, I pray to bless Pastor Philip with clearness of speech and mind, Lord, help us to, to understand the message, and Lord, as we go, help us not just to hear, but Lord, to do and to live your words, Lord, as, as we read them in, the, in your, your perfect word. Lord, thank you so much for for all that you are. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us that that glorious hope that one day we'll be with you around your throne. Lord, I just, again, ask for your blessing on everything happening here today. For we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.
1: I invite you to stand as we open our time in adoration, singing a, a great Christmas song. That's a call to worship angels from the realms of glory. In these first two verses, look at the angels and the shepherds and their anticipation. Of Christ's first coming and the, the third verse is going to consider all of us looking at Christ for his second coming. So let's open our time. Come and worship. Come and worship. Christ the newborn King.
2: Hey. Angels from the realms of or all the earth He who sang creation's story Now proclaim Messiah's birth Come and worship Come and worship Worship Christ the newborn King Shepherds in the field Are fighting, watching God with man is now residing, yonder shines the infant light. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the newborn King. Saints before the altar painting, watching long in hope and fear, shall appear. Come and worship, come and worship. Worship Christ the newborn King. Come and worship, come and worship.
1: Worship
2: praise
1: the newborn King. And that's what we're here to do this morning, is to worship Him as we Joined together in song, this next one is a song of confession. So we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and look at all the reasons that Christ came as to ransom those who are captive. The, the second verse speaks of, 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 come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here and disperse the gloomy clouds of night that's brought about by our, our sin and rebellion to him. Let's confess our need to Christ and look to his ultimate remedy in sinning. Sending Christ and seeing coming name
3: Good morning, my name is Larry Thrasher. I have the privilege of serving as one of your elders here. Uh, Please turn our watch on the screen our scriptures for the day, which is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philip always has a favorite passage. Well, this is one of mine. (laughs) Verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Please be seated as we ask the Lord's blessings on this scripture and uh, prepare for the offering our most gracious, gracious heavenly father we do thank you for your holy word and the scriptures which we read today and the season which we're approaching lord we we just praise you that uh, you've blessed us so richly in this nation and that we have the freedom with which to worship and lord that we have the example to set for others that are lost and don't know you lord we just pray your blessings upon this offering. Multiply it. Give us wisdom in its use. And may it be spread throughout the world with your word. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.
1: As we just read about, we'll sing about now. Come behold the wondrous mystery. And at the end of this first verse it says, Look to Christ who condescended and took on flesh to ransom us. That's what we're celebrating here at Christmas. is There's Christ becoming man, taking on flesh. Ransom us and purchase our salvation So let's rejoice in that together Come behold the wondrous mystery
2: Come behold the wondrous mystery In the taunting of the King He the thief all heaven's praises
0: robed in frail
2: humanity in our longing in our darkness now the light of life has come look to Christ to it, took on flesh to ransom please stand Come, behold the wondrous mystery, He, the perfect Son of Man. In His living, in His offering, Never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to sin. great and sure fulfillment of the law in him we stand come behold the wondrous mystery Christ the Lord upon the tree and in the stead of ruin sinners hangs the land Victory! Yeah. In power resurrected, as we will be when he
1: comes. And let's pray together. Lord, this is our great hope. This is the wondrous mystery that you have revealed to us in the gospel, and it is in Christ, the hope of glory that we trust, and in him uh, we rejoice and worship you this morning. As we approach your word, we pray that you would humble our hearts and give us great attention to Christ this morning on your word. We pray that you would bless Pastor Philip as he delivers your truth, give him great clarity and conviction from his study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well,
4: good morning. Again, what a, what a good morning to be together uh, as we even, uh, that last song just really brings it before us, doesn't it? Come behold the wondrous mystery. When I think of Christmas, and I, and I think of all the components of it, we, we've looked at things like uh, magi traveling to, from afar, following a star uh, that had long ago been foretold, and all that came with that to the fulfillment of prophecy and the picture of God's sovereign work over his creation to the angelic host singing in the air above a group of humble shepherds proclaiming these truths. When, when I consider what it is that truly we are here to celebrate, to recognize, to be renewed in, uh, I think that description is the most apt. Come behold the wondrous mystery. And yet at the end of it, uh, God has brought that mystery to bear. He is declared it and and given it to us that we might know it. And we of all generations are the most blessed that we have the fullness of the story. We have the completion of the account that we actually can gather and celebrate the advent of the Messiah, that which for thousands of years God's people looked forward to with longing we can in remembrance celebrate. That's Christmas. That is what we are now. Or what we're here for in in every way. So the last few weeks we've been looking at the birth of Jesus from the perspective of some who were there. And last week we focused on the shepherds. And and we looked specifically at at what it is that they were told about this baby. And I want to continue to see that. And what I want us to, to focus on is that Jesus was born that he might save his people This time of year should be a time of of amazing recognition of our salvation. It should be a time where, above all others, to some degree, it's brought to the forefront that that God became man, that the the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that so much of what we see in Scripture is, in fact, displayed in what we celebrate at Christmas. And so, with that, this should be a time to, to recognize that that's what Christmas really is. Uh, To be clear, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then you won't much see the point of celebrating His birth. I mean, that just makes sense. We understand that. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then really uh, there's nothing of celebration that will come at Christmas. But for we who know Him as Savior and have submitted to the Lordship that God has granted Him that that we read about that's already established in Philippians 2 and throughout, This time of year should be a pointed focus and remembrance of our salvation. You know, we recognize that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. We know that. But what we also know is that it was a time of great celebration. It was the fulfillment of a long-awaited promise. It was the salvation unto men come into the world, and it is worthy of our recognition. It is worthy of our celebration. and So we do take this time of year to set aside and focus specifically on that. And sometimes the simplest elements are the greatest reminders. Again, when we think of Christmas, you should think in terms of salvation. You should think in terms of Christ born to save. And we know the fullness of the gospel is the completeness of the life lived. It's the completeness of the the life sacrificed upon the cross, the life raised again. It's all of those things, but it began with what we recognize and celebrate. Consider just a few places in scripture to to establish this foundation as we're going to be looking fully at it this morning that that Jesus Christ came to be our savior is a fundamental truth of Christmas. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 the angel said to Joseph that she meaning Mary will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That that word save is a beautiful word. It's a biblical word. Our salvation and the understanding of that. We looked last week in Luke chapter 2 and the angels addressing the shepherds in verse 11 says this, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus Himself addresses this in Luke chapter 19 in verse 10 when He says, For the Son of Man has come to do what? To seek and to save that which was lost. In the Gospel of John, we have the Samaritans coming to this recognition in verse 42 of chapter 4, and they were speaking to the woman who was telling them about this man, and this is what they said. They were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Paul recognized it, and Timothy, when he wrote to him in First Timothy, in one of the final letters he would write in chapter one, he says this: "It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all." And then just one final one, and there are multiple. We could have spent all morning just looking at the scripture describing this, but but one final one: First John chapter four. In verse 14, John writes this, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. In other words, there's a resounding theme about the birth of Christ, the advent of Christ coming into this world, is that He came to save. He came to save His people. This is the message of the angels to the shepherds in the field. As they were trembling in fear, their comfort to them was, Do not be afraid. For we bring great news. Amazing news. Now last week we saw this account. We considered the shepherd's view and, and the role of the birth of our Savior. This week I want to consider some of the, the messengers of this great news. Now I'll tell you, we're going we're gonna to do this in a kind of roundabout way. Uh, we're not going to be in one of the gospel accounts very much. We're going to be looking at one of the epistles that describes this. And we're going to look at the angels and the prophets, they were the ones, they were the messengers of God who told the people of both the coming and the arrival of our Savior. They were God's messengers of the good news of a Messiah promised and come. When considering them, there is one section in Scripture where, where I would call our attention this morning. And if you've been in, in Brother Nick's class, you've just gone through this. I know John went through it recently. And you know that in, in the book of First Peter... There's a lot happening, but there's a continual focus of Peter throughout his epistle to the people, and it's the salvation that has come, the greatness of their salvation. Now I know this is not the normal place to go when considering the birth or the advent of Jesus Christ, but I think that when we're considering i want I want to go beyond just thinking of the baby in a manger and let's let's really understand what Scripture says he represents he's a savior he's the savior and so we should be, in terms of that, realizing, recognizing, understanding that Christmas is about salvation. Christmas is about the promise of a Messiah who would save his people. And so we want to think in terms of salvation uh, and understanding the the messengers as an aspect of how that came about. Now, I will say this. We, We know Peter understood the greatness of our salvation even when Christ was still with him. He was given wisdom beyond himself to know who Christ was. We recognized it at times when all others were turning away. Right, Peter was bold and spoke up and said, well, where else would we go? For you have the words of eternal life. He recognized salvation. He's one who walked away, one of the original twelve, who walked away from everything to follow Jesus in the earthly ministry he had. And so I want us to to understand how Peter viewed the salvation and how he recognizes it from the perspective of the messengers of God, the angels and the prophets. Now, you might, may or may not be familiar, the epistle that Peter wrote was written to a greatly persecuted people. It was written to those who, under the Roman Empire or Roman Emperor Nero, had brought great persecution. To bear upon the, the church upon those who were in Christ, and so they were they were under persecution they were scattered they were struggling and it's interesting to me what is Peter's message of comfort? how does Peter comfort this group of people in the midst of persecution unlike anything that we have faced? they were truly and literally uh, being killed uh, they were being uh, persecuted to the point of death and this is what Peter wrote to his brothers and sisters concerning that and he begins listen to what he does he he points them he says here's your comfort there is no other and we should pay attention to that here's your comfort there is no other and it is your salvation it's your salvation listen as we read in first peter chapter one we're going to begin in verse three and just read down through uh, around verse 12 peter addressing those who are being persecuted in great trial and struggle says this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating As he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, in these things which now have been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long or love to look. Peter was enamored with the salvation that had been brought to this world. I don't even know if enamored begins to cover the picture that Peter has of it. He, he is continually saying to them, yes, you are facing struggles. Yes, your trials are great. Yes, your faith is being tested. But rejoice in exaltation. Because the mystery of the gospel has been brought forth to this generation. And to those who come forth from it, the power of the cross goes forth to each generation Peter speaks clearly of the greatness of our salvation. And as we read in the beginning text, this salvation is the reason for Christ being born. In other words, Christmas is about a savior. Christmas is about the savior. And so I want to focus this morning on a on a better fundamental grasp of our salvation because I believe like Peter that whatever you're facing whatever conflict, whatever trial, whatever tragedy, whatever struggle, that this is the only comfort that we have. This is what will bring us to a point of rejoicing and exaltation and worship, which is rightly our response at Christmas, at the time that we have chosen to recognize and celebrate the advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what we need to understand. This is the reason for the angels singing. They didn't just decide we're going to go scare a few shepherds tonight. They had a specific purpose and reason. This is why the Magi traveled and brought gifts and worshipped because of this salvation that Peter is exhorting and exalting. So this morning as we focus on the advent of our salvation, I love to think in those terms, that Christmas is the celebration of my, my salvation That grace came into the world and I am a recipient of that grace. Rejoice. What can take from that? Exalt. What can rob you of that? What can overshadow that? There's no other things. As much as I have that, I am now free to enjoy opportunities with unbelieving family that I will have maybe only this time of year. I am free to enjoy opportunities with believing family where we can rejoice and celebrate. I am free to stand before you today and exalt in my salvation and rejoice in your salvation together, bringing greater recognition. And so with that, let's, let's think in terms of Christmas as the advent of our salvation. Tonight, we're going to remember the cost of our salvation as we partake in communion together. But let's lay some foundation. Let's consider some foundations of our salvation the first question that should be asked that that is it it's a reminder which much of the book of first and second peter are that he's saying i'm reminding you i'm calling to remembrance these things this is a reminder for us but but let's be reminded saved from what salvation from what what did jesus come to earth born in a manger angels celebrating and in worshiping wise men traveling all of those things herod in, in, in fury, what did Jesus come to earth to save his people from? This is a, a foundational question, which is facing the world this morning, and I would say, say <clears throat> excuse me, say every morning. Because know this truth if a person sees no danger, they will know no salvation. If a person sees no danger, they will know no salvation. To be clear, and this is what I want us to make clear, the question is not, do you necessarily see the danger? Because that doesn't make the danger real or not real. The danger is real. That's why it's a question facing the world every single day. To say that there's no feeling in someone or or a lack thereof of danger is by no means an indicator whether it's real. Many who have suffered the greatest tragedy have done so with no warning it was coming. Physically we've seen that many of you recognize that many people who who face the greatest danger Do so unexpectedly this morning on the way in I had a man run a stop sign and I had to swerve off the road As he himself at the last moment swerved off the road. I can promise you when I left the house this morning. I had no Understanding that that was going to happen. I didn't see it coming so danger doesn't have to be recognized to be real but to be dealt with it has to be recognized and so with that there's not a it doesn't matter whether someone sees the danger for it to be real for those to whom peter was writing i would say this they most definitely saw the danger this particular group were they were under it so to speak they were under persecution they were being scattered and slaughtered they saw the danger and so he wrote to them saying here's the danger you see it but here's Here's the balance to that. This is the first reality of our salvation. And I would say this, it is foundational to loving it and rejoicing in it this Christmas season. In other words, I almost think that the audience Peter originally wrote to could exalt in their salvation a little more fully because the danger was so clearly before them. We today are very protected. We're very comfortable. We don't see these things as clearly. We don't think in terms of these things the way that Peter's original audience would have. And I want us to go back to that so that we might rejoice and exalt in our salvation this Christmas season. So let's just look at a few places in the epistle that Peter wrote and see how and what he warns us about concerning our need for a Savior to be born unto us. What What did Jesus come to save us from? Well, the first one's very obvious. It's throughout the pages of Scripture, but Peter addresses it in chapter 2 of 1 Peter verse 24, and he came to save us from sin. He came to save us from sin. Again, that's a, that's a word that's not oft used today. Now sin is described in a multitude of ways. It's, it's a diagnosis. It's a struggle. It's an oopsie. It's everything but a sin. And yet Peter in Scripture as a whole declares very clearly, sin is what Christ came to save us from. Listen to verse 24. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And here, listen to this. For by His wounds you are or were healed. And what Peter is explaining, and it's very clear, is that our sins are a terminal disease. And that our sins are that which is, is killing us. We walked through this on a Wednesday night and understood that a biblical view of sin is not one that says, oops, It's one that says, wait a second, I recognize that sin is that which will kidnap me. It will entangle me and take me places I never wanted to go. Sin is that which will enslave me. I will become the servant of that which I submit myself to. And sin will enslave me. More than that, sin is a murderer. For the wages of sin are death and all those who partake of these things deserve that. We're told in Romans chapter 8 that if we're not killing sin, sin will be killing us. Sin is deadly. And this is what our sin does to us. Christ as our Savior came first, or, or came in this way to save us from our sins, so that they might be free from them. In this life, and able to live as slaves to righteousness now. Righteousness is able to live in regards to righteousness. That's what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 24. That He Himself bore our sins. He took them upon Himself on the cross so that, or for this purpose, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For you have been healed from this terminal disease of sin which you inherited from Adam. You have been healed from it and you no longer have to live as a slave to unrighteousness but you've been freed and given victory in Christ as your Savior to live as a slave to righteousness. Christ came to save us from this terrible disease of our own sin and the devastation it brings upon God's good design for His people here and now. I think sometimes we miss that. We think in terms of being forgiven for our sins as a heavenly reality. It's a heavenly culmination, but it's an earthly reality. It's something that he accomplishes here. You are saved from your sins, forgiven. It's past tense. It's accomplished and free to now live in the righteousness that he's imputed or given to us. We've been studying in Genesis 3 on Sunday nights, and we have seen very clearly the answer to the question why is there so much bad that happens in this world? Well, the answer is a three letter word sin. Sin is the reason that and so what we see is that Peter says Jesus came to save his people from the disease and the deceit of their sin so that they might live in his righteousness. chapter 2 and verse 24 he further elaborates on that in chapter 3 and verse 18 when he says that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just dying for the unjust why? so that he might bring us to God. That's the the fulfillment of his death, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. I hope you caught that. I hope that you're learning through the, the teaching from this pulpit through your own study that when you see certain words, they're very clear indicators. This one is the phrase, so that. So that indicates the reason for the prior statement. Christ died to bring us to God. That's what Peter's saying, that, that Christ came into the world. And make no mistake, if we haven't connected this dot for you clearly, Christ was born in a manger fully aware that he came to die. There's no, well, I hope this works out differently, and maybe it will. No, Christ, before the foundation of the world, knew in every respect, and even ordained, we're told in, in Acts chapter 4 and other places, men like Pilate and Herod, that these were established before anything else for the purpose of God and all of this. So Christ came and took on flesh knowing that a major part of him taking on flesh was so that he could be killed because God can't die. And so he had to take on flesh like the rest of us so that he could die. So when we speak in terms, I understand Peter's describing not the birth of Christ, but they all function together. And so when he says that Christ came or died for sins, he says this, Christ died, Christ came and died to bring us, to God. In other words, in our state of inherited and practiced sin, I don't want to separate those two because I don't, look, I I get that it was Adam and Eve who brought sin nature to bear and we all inherit that from his likeness and his image. We're told that clearly in Genesis 5 and in Romans 5 and other passages in Scripture. But make no mistake, we're we're, we're very good at it. We took that ball and run with it very well. We don't need any encouragement in our sin, and we would not have done better than Adam and Eve in their sin. And so when I speak in these terms, when the Scripture speaks in them, this is not, let's all be upset that Adam really messed it up. You and I really messed it up. And so that's when I speak in terms of inherited and practice sin. When that happens, there's a separation that occurs. There is a separation that occurs. Our sin is a separator from our God. And what Peter says is that Jesus Christ was born as a Savior who will restore us to God through the forgiveness of our sins. In other words, Jesus saves us from the separation and more than that, the futility that comes through that separation. In Romans chapter 5, we're given a very clear picture of that. I just want to read one verse to you that Jesus saves us from more than just separation. To put it clearly, He saves us from enmity with God, and restores peace with our Creator. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, he just got done with chapter 4 detailing out that grace is a free gift by faith alone. And he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, what do we get? We have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was born. He came to this earth. He lived his life. He died and was resurrected all in the perfect timing and plan of God. And one of the things that he accomplished, one of the Savior attributes or the salvation characteristics that we should be exalting in is that we are saved to be reunited with our Creator. And so the first thing is we are saved from is our sin. Through that salvation, we are healed from the disease it brings. We are healed from the terminal disease that it brings, and we are saved from the war and separation that it has wrought upon us. But that's not even all of it, is it? We're not done yet. That's amazing enough. That should result, if we even pause and ponder that to some degree, that holy God in perfection left his throne, came to this earth, and gave himself for us, being humble to the point of taking on flesh, more than that, to serving others in flesh, more than that, being obedient to the point of death, more than that, to death upon a tree, which was a curse, that He did all of those. That should be enough. But our God is a God of lavish abundance. We see that in His creation, original, and we see that also in His redemption as well. So even though we're saved from that, we are also saved from an inevitable consequence that sits upon us because of who He is and our sin. Judgment, judgment. I am freed from the reality of judgment. I am freed from the recognition of judgment from a holy God as one who is at enmity with Him. In chapter four and verse seventeen, Peter addresses this very specifically. He says, "For it is time." For judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Well, very simply, what, what Peter's saying is that, that there is judgment. And there are those who are going to be judged according to their disobedience. They're, they're going to stand clothed only in their own righteous acts. And those are not sufficient. Hey, in other words, we know from Scripture there is a judgment coming, period. There is no skirting around this. There is no avoidance of this. Judgment is a clear reality for all of humanity, and we are going to be judged according to God and His standard. Hey, he tells us that repeatedly. No man can avoid it, just as no man can avoid death. Right? That's, that's what even this world recognizes. Nobody gets out alive. Death is is an inevitable reality for each of us, and so, therefore, also is judgment. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 details that. It says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes what? Judgment. Scripture is so clear on this. We, We recognize this reality. Romans 1 says that all of us recognize this because of what God has put before us to make clear that there is one who is greater than us. A creator who will judge, and we are under that. We, we know this. And so this judgment that's being described that Peter's dealing with is one that bears condemnation, and I want you to hear me on this, for all men, for all men according to their own unrighteousness. This judgment is a judgment that every man will face. This should weigh heavy. This should bring you to a point of woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips and I will stand before a holy God. Woe is me. I am undone. There's nothing I can do. There's a measure whereby judgment should sit on you 365 days of the year because it's inevitable because it is as inevitable as death. It is inevitable in every respect and Honestly, we deserve it. We chose and choose something less than him. For all we like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray. All have sought after their own ways. And so there's this weight of judgment before a holy God that sits upon us. And Jesus came to save his people from the disease of their sin and from the guilt of Their judgment. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Paul, reaching a culminating point, says very clearly, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. Jesus came to save us from our sin and the Father's judgment. Again, if we stopped right there, we should be at a place where, where these truths pondered in our hearts, realized in our, in our existence, recognized from the truth of the pages of Scripture that even if we paused right now, that should be sufficient, that you should be able to carry that forth in worship and exaltation and rejoicing no matter what you face this season. Just in recognition that a Savior has come. That the mysteries, the wondrous mysteries has been revealed to us. That we have the fullness of the story. That we know the outcome and we know exactly what that looks like. What a beautiful picture. Jesus came to save his people. But, as I said before, our God is lavish. He saves us from more even than that. When we say salvation or Savior, I want us to have a robust full understanding of all that comes in that. And I can't even say that I'm going to cover all of it this morning. Hey, There's no way. It's inexhaustible to the extent that Christ saves His people. But there are some things that we still know, and, and Peter details them out even more than saving us from our sin and from the judgment that is to come. He also saves us from our enemy. Our enemy. This is a big one for us. Uh, And it's again, in the here and now, so much of our salvation has little to do with heaven and everything to do with now. So much of our salvation, and yet so much of what I see within the church today is viewing salvation as something heavenly only, and yet Scripture and, and Peter himself is laying out to those who are in great distress and struggle that no, your salvation is your comfort. Your salvation is your hope. And it's your hope and your comfort now. And so we have this picture of of our enemy and and us being safe. And listen, in chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter exalting the church, he uh, he says this to them, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Why? Why should we, as the children of God, whom there is therefore now no condemnation, why should we be sober in spirit and on the alert? Because we have an enemy. Because we inherit that enemy, so to speak, when we become children of God. We become those who are at odds with his enemy. And we know that enemy. He tells us here, he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Brothers and sisters, we have a great and violent enemy. He wishes great damage and harm to your soul. He is seeking continually through the means of this world over which he has been granted some measure of of freedom of control. He has a great variety of schemes and, and things in which he is seeking after and, and, and pursuing. We have a great and violent enemy. And I'm afraid that we don't take that seriously. I am afraid that in this generation specifically that, that I've been called to minister in and live in as a Christian myself, that this is an area that, that we oftentimes don't recognize. I'm all the time confronting people that, that God hates your marriage. I mean, that Satan hates your marriage. Because it's a representative of God's grace. And that Satan hates all of the goodness and the things that God has given us, and he is seeking continually to bring disgrace upon the name of, of Christ by his children turning from him in different areas and choosing something less. We we have an adversary, one who prowls around. We're told that he's going to and fro upon this earth. And what's he doing in that? He's seeking someone whom he may devour. So we have an enemy, but listen to what John says. Listen to what John says about this enemy. It's a beautiful statement from John about why Christ came and what it means that he's our Savior. In 1 John 3 and verse 8, it says, The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. I mean, how clear is that? At Christmas, our Savior, we celebrate Him appearing, Him coming for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God came for the purpose of destroying the works of our adversary, the devil that Peter lays out. And so as Peter begins chapter 1, calling our attention to the greatness of our salvation he spends much of the rest of his epistle detailing what this great salvation has saved us from. Right? There's so much. When we speak of Christ our Savior, do, you, do, we, do we really ponder what it is that Christ saved us from? Do we think in terms of the fullness? or Are we content just to think, well, he saved us from hell. Let's move on. And we've got to get about decorating and buying presents and everything else. Have we become that complacent? Have we lost what Peter's speaking of that we don't even pause and think Christ came, was born in a manger, that he was all of these things taking on flesh to do all of this, that he saved us from our sins and the consequence of our sins, from their sins and the effects of our sins, from our sins and the enslavement of our sins. He's given us victory over them. More than that, that He saved us from the judgment that our sin has rightfully brought upon us, that each man will face, that in Him who came, that we celebrate at Christmas, that He, therefore, those who are in Him, are no longer facing any condemnation. Again, you don't have to think too deeply to realize that if those who are in Christ Jesus have no condemnation, what do those who are not in Christ Jesus have? Condemnation. And so the judgment is real, and all men will face it. But when we stand before Him who know Christ having come as our Savior, we stand in judgment in Him. And there is therefore now no condemnation which we will receive at that judgment. More than that, He came and defeated our enemy. He destroyed the works that He's seeking to lay. And isn't it amazing how He did so? I'm sure that there's a measure whereby Satan, and we see this continually throughout the history, where Satan is at enmity with God who is using the people of this world and the the flesh of the people of this world and this world itself as a means to confront, to reject, to rebel against their Creator. And so in the advent of Christ, in that moment when He was most celebrating, which would be at the death of Christ, at the hands of sinners, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, bloody, beaten, and bruised, naked, nailed to a cross. That there's never been a point of greater, I would think, celebration of our enemy. And yet, what was being accomplished? His own defeat. That's the goodness and the fullness and the greatness of our God. And that's the salvation that comes Jesus saves us from these things. Peter says very clearly that the Savior has come because we need to be saved from the disease of sin, that we need to be saved from our guilt and judgment or our condemnation, and we need to be saved from the devouring desire of our adversary who is the devil. And so it's clear from just this epistle alone, there is grave danger facing each one of us. Danger that whether we are aware of it or not, we need to be saved from. And for we who recognize Christ our Savior, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. That salvation came into the world. That salvation came and and sought that which was lost and gave himself a ransom for those who are his. That we who are his get to celebrate that. Being saved from But more than that, a second fundamental question that we should be asking that goes into this recognition of our salvation, Christ our Savior coming to save His people, to save the world. Well, what's the salvation? What have we been saved for? In other words, what's our salvation unto? The next point is, is another foundation of that. What did Jesus come to save us for? Well, again, I just want to walk through, and there are multiple places we could look, but Peter lays these out for people who are in distress. That they would rejoice and exalt. And how much more so should we, who are not in that distress, be able to rejoice and exalt? And so it's not just that we need to be saved from a grave danger. There is more to this salvation. We also are saved for something. Look at 1 Peter 2 and verse 25. 1 Peter 2 and verse 25. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to who? the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they know my voice and they follow me. We're told continually that Jesus came to a lost and straying flock, but he didn't just come to give them heavenly salvation only. He also came to be the shepherd and the guardian of their souls. I call to our minds possibly the most famous psalm of all. Everyone probably has heard it. Most of you know it. Psalm 23, where David recounts the greatness of, of his Savior, recognizing the Lord and, and all that the Lord has set upon him. And he says these very familiar words. I just want just to read them and understand here's, here's a picture of, of a man rejoicing and exalting in one small element of what it is that our salvation has brought to us. The guardianship and the shepherding of our souls. Listen to what he says in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. What does that mean? I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, there's Christianity summed up. Right there in Psalm 23, we have the essence of, of our salvation and how we live in light of that and the goodness of God being displayed in that and the fullness of the promise in spite of everything else. Yes, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Every single one of us all the time. But the guardian and the shepherd of our souls leads us in green pastures and beside quiet waters. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus came to be our good shepherd who will truly lead us in green pastures and will truly bring us beside still waters. What an amazing birth we celebrate. I hope, I hope that there's a measure whereby through this morning, you are coming to greater and greater terms with what it means that Jesus Christ was born to bring salvation. We're not done. We were also saved for more than that. Now we're moving a little bit beyond the realm of the things we experience here. We were also saved for an eternal inheritance. In chapter one and verse four, Peter says that, that our salvation is given to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Man, how'd you like to have that promise from the stock market? How'd you like to have that promise for your retirement? I mean, guys, look, I don't even have that promise for, for the for the prom- for whatever it is that I'm supposed to get when I turn 65. I don't even mean, you guys, some of you guys have that already. I don't, I forget what it's called. What's it called, John? Social Security. I might not even get Social Security the way things are going. We can't count on anything to be imperishable and undefiled. And yet here we have Peter telling the people in the midst of, again, I can't reiterate enough to you to understand, their uncertainty was beyond anything that we've experienced. Their trial and suffering and persecution was weighty in every sense. And he says to them, but take heart, because you have something that can't be touched by this world. Though they may slay you, it doesn't matter because you have an eternal inheritance. It's there. It's waiting on you. It will not fade away. And where is it? It's reserved in heaven for you. He says that when this chief shepherd appears again in chapter 5 and verse 4, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Have you ever thought through the fullness of what that looks like? That you were saved so that you can receive an unfading crown of glory. Jesus came the first time, which we are celebrating now, so that when He comes again, He has saved His people for an inheritance of glory, unfading and imperishable. Isn't that a picture that, that should, should drive you beyond whatever the, the mundane realities of today are? It should lift you. And that's what Peter was counting on. That's why he wrote this letter as an encouragement, an exhortation, a continuation for the children of God in the face of massive trials, which were testing their faith. And so in that, how much more so can we, in the face of the gifts and the grace that we have, celebrate this Christmas? And what will that result in? Well, here we go. 1 Peter 4 and verse 13. Joy and exaltation. Joy and exaltation, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, listen to Peter. Keep on rejoicing. That's so contrary to our flesh. That's only for the children of God that that would even begin to make sense. Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Very simply, what Peter's saying is that if you don't find hope enough in your salvation to rejoice in whatever this world gives you, then there's a good chance that when Christ returns, you won't be rejoicing then either. Because that's the fulfillment of what we already have come to experience. Do you, do you see why Peter was excited about this salvation? Do you see why when he spoke in terms of, of this rejoice and, and other things because of the salvation, why he offered it as the only source of comfort that was available and needed for God's children. He, he doesn't apologize for that. He wasn't like, guys, it's been really, really tough. I know you guys are under serious persecution, but all I have to offer you is your salvation. I hope it gets you through. By no means is that the picture we see of, of Peter in chapter 1. As he walks through this, he was excited about it. He's like, guys, take heart. Not only take heart, but rejoice in your sufferings. Not only rejoice, but, but be Exalted. Exalt the Lord in these things. Don't don't. So many times I've seen this in, in my own heart where I'm prone to do what when things go badly? Blame the Lord. Be upset with the Lord. Lord, how could you? Lord, why? Lord, this. Lord, that. And Peter says, no, no, no. If you're rightly seeing your salvation, let me remind you of that so that in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your suffering, you will exalt Him all the more because of all the things we've already listed. Peter was excited. He made no apologies. He offered their salvation as their comfort, the only comfort available. Isn't it amazing how much Jesus did that? He said, look, I didn't come to fix these things. I came to bring salvation. I didn't come to bring justice and other things to the fullness in this earth. That's coming. I will do that. It's coming when I return. But I came this time to bring salvation to the people. This world is going to get worse. The poor you will always have with you. The unrighteousness will continue. It must come, but woe unto those through whom it comes. There is a time coming when I will fix that. But right now I came to save, to seek and to save, to pay a ransom for that which was lost, to bring them unto myself. They will recognize my voice for I am their shepherd and they are my sheep and they will follow me. And Peter says, and they will be exalted on that day when... He returns. They will rejoice no matter what comes their way now because of the hope they have which is unfading in them. This is our salvation. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to save His people from their sin, from their judgment, and from their enemy. And He came to save them for His good shepherding and care an eternal inheritance of glory and for joyful exaltation in the face of everything that comes culminating in His return. Because we're told in Scripture that we who have hoped in Him are those who long for His return. It's a good measure of whether or not you truly know Him. Are you scared to death He's going to come back? Or are you excited and hope that He comes back soon? This is the distinction. And this is what Peter is exhorting them. And he's saying, take heart. rejoice, Because this is the reality. He's coming back. He's proven everything through everything He promised He's done about His birth, from where He was born and what would happen when He was born. Every element of it. And then through the course of that, He withstood temptation. He did what Adam could not do. He took that righteousness which was His, and He took the cross which was ours, and He gave us His righteousness. Rejoice this Christmas season. That was Peter's view of the greatness of our salvation. That is what he is speaking of in chapter 1. That is the comfort and hope which he offers. Now, to bring this full circle, having, I hope, been reminded or possibly confronted with what Jesus the Savior means in terms of salvation, I want to conclude and look at verses 10-12. through Where what Peter does, and it's really a unique aspect, it's a unique way in which he does it, He's seeking to amplify our joyful celebration of our salvation, or as we would say this morning, of Jesus, who is our salvation. And he does so in a way that that I don't know is is normal. I, I don't know that it's one that in our own logic and reasoning we would have considered. In other words, in magnifying our view of salvation, he does so by means of describing those who prepared it for us, their view. Or those who brought it to bear. He he he's exhorted us in how we should view it, but then he magnifies it even further by speaking in terms of those who who were watching it. Listen to verses 10 through 12. As to this salvation, that's what he's just given us and exhorted us in in chapter in verses three through nine. And then he speaks as to this salvation. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, they made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, there are four entities in view here. There are four who are described in this who have a hand in the bringing of our salvation. And This morning we're only going to look at two, because these specific two point us back to the celebration of his birth this morning. Let me give you all four of them that are in this text. You have the prophets, you have the preachers of the gospel, you have the Holy Spirit who brings it, and you have the angels who love to look at it, that that announced it. There's a picture here of four entities, but this morning I want to look at the prophets who foretold it, and the angels who told us about it. How great is our salvation, which came through Jesus the Savior being born into the world. Well, let's think about this. Prophets. Now that's a group. That's a group of men. The prophets of God. Elijah. Moses. Habakkuk. Ezekiel. Micah. Isaiah. Jeremiah. These men are the heroes of our faith. These are the men that we read that God worked through, that, that suffered and stood steadfastly, irresolutely in the face of so much to be the man of God, to proclaim. I mean, if you love your Bible, you love these men, heroes of our faith. And these men, were told here, Peter says, these men were carefully seeking and inquiring about the things which they were given by God to proclaim. They were carefully searching this out. The value of what they were proclaiming was so great that they searched and they longed for it. These men of God, Ezekiel, isn't it amazing when you think, it's easy for me to be a little jealous of Moses or, or, or some others, right? I mean, think about this on a multitude of fronts and how foolish is this? Because I think in terms of Moses and I think, God, I wish you'd give me a burning bush tomorrow to help confirm which direction I should go and how I should do it. And then I think, you know what? Moses would trade the burning bush a thousand times over to have what we have. We have the completed story. We have the fullness. We know what Moses' purpose was. We know the fullness of what it's being brought to bear. We know that there's more for Moses to do. I don't even know that he knew. I'm sure he didn't know that at the time that he was serving God. and, and that he had, he had a very small window with the burning bush and through other things, and yet we're so prone to, to be jealous of these things. And, and yet how much more so? It says that these prophets who were prophesying about these things, that they searched and looked carefully into it. Man, how valuable must that have been? If Moses having the burning bush won in according to Peter through the Holy Spirit, to understand more fully what, who knows? Philip knows. Isn't that amazing? That God in His grace has given this generation of you and I this fullness of knowledge, this fullness of our understanding. And yet the sad part is what? Because of its availability, because of its fullness, because of its ease with which we can grasp it, most of us don't bother. Most of us don't bother to contemplate deeply on our salvation. Most of us don't read through 1 Peter. Now, if we start facing if Nero were to take over again, maybe we'd start reading 1 Peter again more fully. Let us be those who will judge ourselves rightly in the times of peace, that we might celebrate the fullness, that we might rejoice in exaltation in the midst of this. Consider the prophets, that they, these great men of old that I read about, and I think, wow, I wish that I could be Elijah thundering against the prophets of Baal and standing in the ways that he did and and doing all that he did. And then it says this. Wait a second. Elijah not only was seeking to know what I've been given to know, but more than that, it says that he was serving you and I in his labors and sufferings, that he wasn't even doing this on behalf of himself, that it was for you and for I. That's That's what Peter says, that they were serving who? Us in these things. The salvation which Jesus brought to the world was for us to experience and to know the fullness as those who would know the Messiah by name. It does not mean that Elijah is not saved by grace. It just means that he didn't have the full progress of revelation that we have been gifted to have. And that was kind of the point. Right? They wanted to know God. That's what Paul says. My greatest desire, I count everything else as rubbish to the surpassing greatness of knowing you. If you're going to boast, boast in this, that you know Him. And what we're being told is that we in this generation have what the prophets didn't have, the fullness of it. We have the record of the prophets, that they were serving us, that we can see that that Bethlehem was prophesied in the book of Micah as the place where Christ was come. We can see the crucifixion of Christ in Isaiah 53 so clearly displayed, 700 plus years prior to it ever happening. We have so much where the prophets are laying the foundation, the bedrock for our faith. Listen how it describes them. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, the heroes of our faith. Just, just listen as I read just a few verses. Verses 1 and 2 tells us what faith is. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. And then listen to verse 13. And all of these died in faith without receiving the promises but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. This salvation that we have, that Christ came to bring was so great that the men of old believed in it but never saw it. Their faith was looking forward to a Savior to come, and we are those who have seen it. And we get to look back upon it in faith, also enjoying the Savior who has come. That Is our Christmas celebration of a Savior who has come. In our final group this morning, one of our favorite groups, especially at Christmas time, these these pop up everywhere. Angels, those powerful and mysterious creations of God who are His messengers in the Christmas account. Their roles in our salvation are innumerable. It was interesting as I read one commentator describing angels, he dealt with both sides of the coin those who are fallen, and those who are still righteous. Listen to what he says. Angels have been involved in our salvation, he's speaking. The holy angels have been involved in salvation. The holy angels announced Christ's birth. The holy angels ministered him in his temptation. They served there at the resurrection. They attended to his ascension. And they are now doing his bidding on behalf of the saints. And the fallen angels were around as well. They were attacking Him in His temptation. They were besieging Him in His life. They were trying to kill Him and keep Him dead upon that cross. They were trying to keep Him in the grave. They have assaulted His work and His church. The angels, holy and fallen, have been around the work of salvation and not one of them will ever experience it. Quotation ended. These amazing creatures that so many... In humanity over history have sought to worship, to exalt them to some mystical thing, to to worship them in in some form or fashion, these amazing amazing messengers of God. Peter says they're those who, who long or love to look into the amazingness of what we have, into the amazingness of salvation. The holy angels don't need it. The fallen angels can't have it. This is the finish of that quote, but they have a powerful desire to look more deeply into the immense, miraculous, gracious salvation, which they will never experience. How much more so you and I who have experienced it. When we think in terms of heart, the herald angels sing and we see them celebrating and worshiping this baby in a manger, the savior born to save men, not them. Man, if the angels get excited about our salvation, how much more should we who actually experience it? This Christmas season, which we enjoy and celebrate, we need to ask ourselves, do we worship rightly? I pray that as you consider the greatness of your salvation and the Savior who brought it, that you will this year recognize it that you will worship rightly. And if all you have to look forward to is presents and decorations and time off from work and time with family, then know this even as good as they might be, they are nothing in comparison to the salvation that is available to this world through Christ our Savior, born that we celebrate. Do not resist the salvation. Why would you resist? But rather, Open to belief that you might experience. We're told in Scripture, we hear that that seeing is believing. Scripture says no believing is seeing. When He raised Lazarus from the dead, Christ exalted and told us that that those who believe will see these things. This This is the measure of it. Do not resist it. This great salvation that prophets sought to understand. Angels long to look into in which we get to celebrate this Christmas season. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we are so thankful for the grace that has come into this world. Lord, that we don't deserve it, that we can't even fully understand it. But Lord, I pray that this morning we have a greater picture of its worth and value, that we might celebrate it rightly, that we might rejoice in it. Lord, that if we've been laid low by this world and the things of this world, that we might be lifted high this morning by the truth from your word. Lord, that we might recognize truly our position in you that we might understand fully what we lack apart from You. That we who are in You, if we are in the midst of straying, Lord, that we would return to You fully, that Your Word would do its work in our hearts, that we would repent and turn. And Lord, if there are those here today who have never stopped straying, who maybe they have a religious something, or they have a recognition of Christmas, or or they speak in terms of Christ their Savior, but never saw that beyond heaven, Lord, that they would truly this morning through your work in their heart, receive you as their Savior. Lord, that they would know the fullness of their salvation, that they might for the first Christmas ever rejoice and exalt in you. Lord, I ask for these things in your Son Christ's name. Amen.
1: Let's stand together and close out our time. Uh, sing together about this great truth we've just seen in the Word. We'll sing together the song, What Child Is This? Asking the question that that pastor philip just answered from the book of first peter and the third verse says it clearly what child is this he is the king of kings and brings salvation let's sing together Time in prayer. But we're so grateful for this truth that this babe who was born in a manger is truly the one who came to bring us salvation, as Peter brings out for us, and and the prophets who prophesied of him, and the angels who uh, who sing of Christ from the time they were created are now beholding him taking on flesh to ransom us and to purchase our
3: salvation.
1: Lord, humble our hearts by the greatness of our salvation, we might worship you rightly. We pray this in Christ's strong name. Amen.